You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. The best Christmas ever. You guys ready? Excited to jump into this new series, excited for this season. As you guys uh, already know, I, I do enjoy Christmas time. Do you guys enjoy Christmas time? You guys enjoy the snow? I'm from Utah. I was like born in the snow. Man, this is, this is what we live for. We're going to introduce uh, the series by focusing on um, one of the most important characters in the story. Uh, This entire series, The Best Christmas Ever, is going to be discovering the gifts that God gives us, such as uh, the Advent's words that we usually go over on a, in a, in December. And, but we're going to see them through the lens of Mary. We're going to evaluate the story through the lens of Mary, the mother of Jesus, through this series. So we're going to focus mainly on Mary's song, which is what Allison just got up and read after worship was Mary's song found in Luke chapter 1, 46 through, 40, or 46 through 55. So the entire series is going to be looking at the best Christmas ever, the gifts that God gives us through the lens of Mary's song. Because Mary often will, she is a character that we think about within the, the story of the nativity and the birth of Jesus, but she's often a, a silent character in the story of Jesus' birth. She's there. We don't really get to hear much of her thoughts, what she was thinking about. And when you look at Mary's song, you have an understanding that there was a lot going on, that she was actually a a very important voice in the prophetic nature of the coming of Jesus within the song in Luke 1. So we're going to study Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55 this month, and look at how these things point to things like hope, peace, joy, and love. So the first one we're going to look at today is hope. But I want to start off, too, by trying to really understand who Mary was. You know, we have a a lot of different connotations, a lot of different ideas of the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and imagery that we see today. So let's talk first about the images that come to mind when you think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. One of the popular images that you might find are one of these that you might see shown on today's World Wide Webs. This is what most people think of Mary. I think if you were to think of, show me the picture of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's this glamorized, glowing, saintly type of uh, individual. I doubt many of us think of the historical Mary this way. In fact, this is a picture who most likely represents the historical Mary. This was a, a young girl living in Jerusalem at the 19th century. Many of us may not think of the, the glamorized Mary this way, the saintly Mary this way, that this is most likely the Mary that we're going to be discovering. This is the, the Mary that God chose to bring about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was the historical Mary. I want to first dig into who this Mary, the mother of Jesus, was. How do we understand her so we can understand her song as she prophesies and begins to think about the things her son is going to be doing? So what do we know about Mary? Well, we know that she was from Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is a backwater of a town. 
in Judea. It has no political power. It has no real religious power necessarily at the time. It has no historical significance. There's no sources talking about how great Nazareth is. In fact, most of the time you hear about how poor Nazareth is. In fact, John will even say in his, in his gospel, what good comes from Galilee, which is where Nazareth is? What good comes from this place? Nothing good comes from this area. It's kind of a backwater, a nothing, a poor man's home and hovel. This is where she was born and raised. This is where she came from, was from the town of Nazareth, a place of no real significance. It had about 1,600 people. So it was actually a little smaller than Colfax, a little village in the countryside of Judea. It was a, a place where you had to work multiple jobs in order to survive. Some were, were people who were tradesmen, such as carpenters. Others also had to take on agricultural responsibilities as well. So there were oftentimes you were doing both things in Nazareth. They, they had what's called a triple tax at the time of, of Mary, where you had to pay taxes to Herod, who was the overseer governor of the area of Judea, so you had to pay taxes to him. You had to pay taxes to Rome, of course, who oversaw Herod. And then you had the 10% temple tax that you had to pay as a Jewish member of society. And so as you can tell, they were taxed until they almost had nothing left. And so they were really a poor peasantry class living in a no man's land of Nazareth which makes you even think more about the, the type of mentality, the attitude of which Mary grew up in and was a part of. And one of the most shocking things that I think, don't think a lot of people think about when Mary sings her song in Luke chapter 1 is that she could have been as young as 13 years old when she did this, which is why I wanted Allison to come up and, and read this, because I wanted to, to show you that, you know, Allison is 16, so she's a little bit older than what Mary probably was when she um, was pregnant with Jesus. Because at 13 is when the women were becoming or starting to be betrothed in their time. They had to have maximized capabilities for childbearing. You know, childbearing really killed a lot of of women in their day. The, The mortality rate was extremely high. And so the society of Mary's day would have forced her to be betrothed to Mary at a very, very young age, someone that we would have thought was a child was someone who was having to, to make these responsibilities. So as we read about Mary, I want you to put all of these things into the context of who she was, the things that she was experiencing. I mean, put yourself in her shoes, for example, a 13-year-old girl. God has said, I'm going to choose you. And she has says yes to bearing this, this promise of God. But none of society gets to hear about that promise like she did. Her family didn't get to hear it. Her friends didn't get to hear it. Joseph himself, the the person that she was supposed to marry, was kind of like, yeah, mm mm-hmm. Sure you you were visited by God, Mary. I'm going to divorce you silently. At least wasn't a jerk about it. He had a plan to at least get out of this quietly. Yet through all of the circumstances that she was going through, in the context of the historical Mary, the oppression, the injustices that she must have been experiencing through life, the circumstances that she found herself in bearing the child of Jesus at a young age with very little hope for what could that would look like, yet she sang her song. In a worldly sense, if you chose someone to bring about the God flesh or God in the flesh, I doubt many of us would have chose a, a peasant 13-year-old girl living in a backwater of Judea. 
From a worldly standpoint, this is about the last person you would have thought that God would have chose to bring about his redemption into the world. Most of us maybe would have thought of a kingly person, a royal person, someone who had money, someone who had power, someone who was able to, to actually bring about a, a fresh and maybe a, a, a more advantageous childhood for the Savior of the world, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But yet God chose Mary to do this, and she's going to sing about it. Mary must have gone through some ridiculously hard circumstances as she wrestled with all the things that she was looking at in the face, this idea of silently being divorced from Joseph. And if you were, again, if, if you were a woman, especially in Mary's place and her state, if you weren't married, you were going to be desolate. Being married was the only way that you were going to be able to make a living, to have a living. I mean, girls and, and women at this age were, in this time period, were never trained to read. They were never trained to write. Most of them only knew the household. They didn't really, most, many of them didn't know how to do any kind of trade or anything like this. So there, there was really a lot of uncertainty in Mary as well. There must have been some a sense of the circumstances I am. How am I ever going to get out of this or go about with this? So let's look at Mary's song, knowing her circumstances, knowing her context, that yet through all of this, she still had hope. So let me read again Mary's song for you. And just listen to what she's singing, knowing this is who she is in the context of where she is experiencing it. She sings this, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So there's a couple passages and two verses I just want to explore today within this song about Mary's perspective and how it teaches us about hope and the circumstances that we find ourselves in and how it can really umbrella this idea of the best Christmas ever. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 48 is one of the verses that we're going to look at today. She says this, Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, surely from now on all generations will 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 call me blessed. So Mary had hope despite her circumstances. This is an important thing we can learn from Mary's song, is Mary had hope despite her circumstances. And her circumstances were very poor, giving the context of where she was at at this point in time in the story. She had a lot of hope about things that were going to happen, but she also understood that she was in a very humble circumstance, a very humble circumstance. Again, she knew that Joseph had the right to divorce her, I doubt she had a lot of support from her kin. We hear nothing about what her mother thought. We hear nothing about what her father thought. We hear nothing about what her community thought. But I think we can make some assumptions based on the historical context and how we would probably view a very similar situation in our lives. A woman of a very little circumstance, a very little opportunity to be self-sufficient, she was looking at some hard things ahead of her if God didn't give her and deliver on the promises that he gave her. So she was, she was holding on to this hope 
in the, in the, despite the circumstances that she was, was going through. And this idea of humble condition is the Greek word taponosis, taponosis, and it just means humiliation. So when she talks about the humble condition, she's talking about being in a, a, a servant to the Lord, but it's humiliating. It's humiliating. None of us like to be in humiliating circumstances, do we? Where you're looked at, you're poked at, you're made fun of, you're judged, you're criticized. All these things that, that put us into a humiliating position, that's where she found herself, in a place of humiliation, taponosis. She was enduring the humiliating circumstances. She calls herself a, a, a slave, a, a doulos in the Greek, to her Lord. She's like, because I am looked at favor from God, I am in, I'm enduring humiliating circumstances. We don't always associate favor with God with humiliating circumstances, do we? Yet that's where she finds herself. That's where she finds herself. But the hope is not found in just living within humiliation. She sees herself that through the promises of God, there's a hope that I will be called blessed rather than you can imagine the things that she was being called behind her back and maybe even to her face at the time of this song. She says, yet the Lord saw me. Epiplepo in Greek, epiplepo. He he saw me, he looked upon me, he saw my face. In in the great Israelite blessing, it talks about how is, don't, you know, let your face shine upon me. It's the idea of God looking upon you, seeing your conditions, seeing your circumstances, seeing where you're at and looking at you with favor, meeting you in your circumstances, looking at you in your hurt, your brokenness and saying, I see you. And so often as as humans, so often what we desire and what our souls crave is just to be recognized in our circumstances. We search for it, don't we? We look at, in, within community, we'll look at validation from people saying, they just recognize the circumstances I'm in. And she is singing and rejoicing to the Lord in her circumstances, saying, he is seeing me in my circumstances. He is sitting with me in my circumstances, in my humble condition, in my humiliation. He is seeing me, and I have the hope that he will one day revert all of the humiliation I'm going through and that it will bring a blessing that people will call me blessed. Well, how many of us look at Mary and think of humiliation today? Probably nobody. But most of us and all of us look at Mary and go, she was blessed. So her prophetic song in Luke 1 is becoming real and true as we read this today. She is crying out from her heart that God took the most unlikely of person from one of the most unlikely places and bringing about the most amazing process in the history of mankind the birth of the Messiah of Israel, God in the flesh. And because of this, the humiliation that she is going through will be turned into blessing. That despite her circumstances, she had hope. Despite the circumstances, she had hope. And this teaches us a lot about the Christian idea of hope. What does it mean to have hope? Christian hope is never dependent on circumstances. Christian hope is never dependent on on circumstances. It has nothing to do with the way my life is going. It has nothing to do with the way the world is going. It's all about waiting on the Lord. Hope in the Lord is about waiting on the Lord. And the Hebrew word is the word kavah, kavah. And the way that an Israelite would have understood hope 
is the, is the same way as you would understand the tension of a rope. The tension that you find in a rope. Now, as humans, we love when the, the rope is relaxed. You're not in tension. It would say that you're not in hope, as an Israelite mind would think about. It. You're not in hope because you're, 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 you're relaxed. But he says the hope that you're waiting on, the hope that Mary has in this moment, is one that's being wound into the place of tension. This is the expression that an Israelite would understand, is that your life is in this hope place of tension being pulled. And now we don't like tension. We like this. We like feeling relaxed, don't we? This is more comfortable for all of us, isn't it? To feel a little bit more relaxed. This is where complacency comes into place as well. When we like, we kind of put things around us that will help this to be more relaxed. But what God is doing in Mary and what he does in all of us in our circumstances is he starts pulling this thing and he gets it tight. Almost to the point where some of us feel like it's going to snap. But this is the expression of tension that is hope. Because without hope, there is no tension. So in your life, you think about your life, what are you hoping for? What brings the tension of circumstances in your life where you're kind of feeling, as Mary feels, I'm in a humble condition. I'm in a humiliating place. And I feel the tension of hope in my life. Kavah, to wait with the imagery of tension is the hope image of, of what the Bible speaks about. And we don't always like it. None of us like living in tension. In fact, we have a couple of English words that help us to kind of deal with this tension. It's called optimism and pessimism, right? We have different ways of thinking about this tension in our lives. Some of us look at it and go, ooh, it's a good thing. Yes, I like it. It hurts, but it's good. Some of us are like, I'm going to try to stay as far away I can from tension, right? We have an optimistic outlook and a pessimistic outlook, and it's and I think it's, it's not necessarily a helpful way to look at the biblical idea of hope. <laughs> because if you're looking at it as a good thing or a bad thing, you're kind of missing the whole point of why you're in tension. You know, Mary's not in her condition going, well, you know, at least I'm having a baby. And, well, bad thing is I'm getting, you know, really teased a lot. You know, she, you don't really see this optimistic, pessimistic outlook. What you see is somebody who is understanding the hope that's in the Lord and the promises that are coming, but also the recognition of the circumstances. The tension that she's feeling, the hardships that she's feeling are being trumped by the hope that she has in the tension. Hope that the Lord is working through her in the tension. There's going to be an outcome at the end of this through the tension. Hope that in the circumstances that the Lord sees her, is with her, is walking with her, is delivering with her. Hope that he rights the wrongs eventually. Hope that he writes the wrongs eventually. You know, the best Christmas ever isn't about trying to be optimistic and pessimistic or ignoring the tension or surrounding yourselves with things that are just going to make you relaxed and complacent. It's about waiting in the Lord for the hope that's about to come in whatever that looks like in your life. That has millions of applications, individual applications for each of us. Is what, are, what are you in tension for? What are you in waiting for for the Lord to bring you through? And are we looking at it from an optimistic and pessimistic standpoint? Or are we looking at this is something the Lord wants to build within me? That he's doing something and it's tense. And I have to wait on it. Because how many of you love waiting? None of us do. None of us like waiting in lines. None of us like waiting. But that is the hope that is found is in how we wait on the Lord. 
Patience is a key spiritual fruit because of how important it is and how we wait on the Lord to deliver us. And our hope is motivated by remembering our past experiences. Our hope is motivated by remembering our past experiences. I think a lot of things that we kind of miss, this is why I love studying the Old Testament, is because Israel was extremely good at remembering the past. They were very good at remembering the things God did a generation before them, generation before them, and a generation before them. And it helped motivate them to move forward in the hope. Because they understood that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. They already understood that. When the Hebrews writer talks of Jesus later in the New Testament, he says the same thing. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our hope is motivated by remembering our past experiences. And I have a tension within me in particular. I'm going to, confession time, you guys always like that, right? A tension within me around failure, around being seen as a failure, the, the humiliating idea of, of being a failure. Anybody else feel that way? I see a good, yeah. Nobody wants to fail. It's humiliating, it's humbling, it's, and it, you, you kind of run from it, right? You try to do, okay, what can I not get involved in that I make sure I don't fail so I have this nice, relaxed tension? I was going to say no to everything because I just don't want to fail, right? Because if you start putting yourself in positions where you could fail, there starts to become this tension, doesn't it? You know, oh, what if this doesn't go right? What if all those people that, that said I couldn't do this are right and I shouldn't, you know, I fail and they say, well, I told you so, Right? There's a tension when we do that. And I have that in my life very much. Even when I, when I, this time last year, I was just thinking about it as we were worshiping. I remember sitting down in, in, in Utah and being like, I really think, like immensely, I never said this out loud because it would have been weird because I hadn't even interviewed yet. But I remember immensely thinking, I'll probably be in Washington this time next year. Like, it's just like, I knew it, but it was like, I hadn't even talked to anybody yet. So I didn't want to be that weird guy that was like, I know it. Because then people be like, you haven't even talked to them yet, right? But there was this, there was a, there was this idea, and then people kind of looked at me like, yeah, sure, okay, uh huh. Especially my closest friends, my family, who I would share that with, and um, you know, there was this kind of sense of like, well, what if it doesn't work out? What if I go up there and I fail, right? And it, it can be crippling. But the hope that motivated me more than anything was seeing how God delivered things, and did things in the past. You know, so often we, we get so caught up in, um, even, even financially for a minute, there's this idea of, of failing because of finances. And, and I got to tell you a story that just blew my, it was, it was something that God did 100% that I, get to, that I get to brag about. So I was a part of a church and we had gone through, our senior pastor had just passed away, you know, very charismatic big guy, you know, just everyone loved him. And we probably lost at least 50% of the church because of this, right? So we're, we're mourning and grieving the loss of our friend, our brother, or, and, and then you have all these people who are leaving. We're mourning that as well. That's intense and that's difficult. And the church is just losing money like crazy. You don't lose, you know, more than 50% of your people. And you, you just look at the bank statements, you go, how are we going to do this? Right? The panic starts to touch to come in, the tension starts to come in, right? This is kind of how we felt. We're like, oh boy. Well, we're sitting there. I remember this, remember this like yesterday. This was like six, seven years ago. We're sitting there and then somebody walks into the office and she hands a, an envelope to us. 
and we're just like to one of our, our people on staff, and we're just sitting there. We're, we're, we're literally in the meeting talking about we don't know what to do. <laughs> we didn't know what we were going to do. We have no idea how we're going to do this. How are we going to continue on? And they open up the envelope. It was a million-dollar check that someone had sold their business and said, I had my entire life, all I'd ever wanted to do was to give 10%. I wanted to be able to give a million dollars to the church. He sold his business for $10 million and he gave it to us. Talk about the tension and the hope, right? That church is, is going live and well today because of that. But it was like this for a long time, waiting on the Lord to do something because we had no idea what we were going to do. It was tense and it was difficult. And then things, and when times like this happen, when we think about things now in our season, I, I always go back to those types of experiences. I remember being in the boardroom when that happened. I remember another, I could recite time and time again in the past where God has come in and done something amazing. Always different than I expected. Nobody expected a check like that, right? No one ever does. That's, that's, a, that's unreal. And it's just, there's things that happen in the past that help motivate us for the hope that we have now. And so I think, think about that this week as you wrestle with stuff like this, is what past experiences help motivate you in hope? What past experiences help to motivate you in the hope that you have and the tension you have in this walk? And the second thing that Mary hits on that I want to hit on with hope, at least, is the hope of Mary, in particular, the, the, the pinnacle of what she's hoping for in her song is the hope for justice the hope for justice. Look at verses 52 through 53. She says this, he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. This is is really her, her focus of hope. It's not even like the rescuing of her humiliation necessarily. Like get me out of this humiliating place. It's not like what she's, that's not the focus either. This is the focus of her hope. This is what she's hoping that, that God was going to do, that the, the prophecy of, and the blessing that or she's prophesying out in this song, this is the hope that God, that Jesus is going to restore and bring. The focus of this song is on the hope for justice. Mary is prophesying that this baby that she will bring into this world will bring about the end of injustice and abuse in her world. The things that she's experiencing, the humiliation, things she's experienced all through her life, she says all these things, my redeemer in my womb is going to end. And she is rejoicing over it. She is praising God for it. Mary would have been no stranger to the corruption, the injustice, the abuse of power in her day. She recognized it right away that in her hope, in her womb is the hope that her soul seeks. The end of injustice. And it gives me, kind of got me thinking a little bit as we, as we think about this message and think about the season, what you hope for shapes what you live for. What you hope for really will shape what you live for. You know, what are you hoping for? As Mary was, was hoping for the end of injustice, that was her prophetic hope to the Lord about what he would do in this world and how his kingdom would be restored. What are you hoping for in this season? What are you hoping for that will shape the way you live your life? Because what you're desiring, the things you're hoping for will shape what you live for. Mary wanted to see the end 
of injustice. She recognized and knew the scripture so well. She understood that this Messiah would also bring about a new kingdom, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of restoration, a kingdom where creation will stop being oppressed by the, by the sins of the world and that there will one day be an end to it all. She understood the groans of creation. She understood these things that she is going to be talking about. The gift of hope of, for Mary was, was about the end of injustice, shaped around how she lived through the humiliation and the hardships to which she came. So she was seeing her injustices through the lens of humiliation, the hardships that she came. And so Christmas, I mean, it's, I love Christmas so much, but I also recognize that it can be a very hard time. I know that Christmas is a stressful time. It brings up a lot of memories. If you're going through loss, Christmas can be one of the most difficult times of the year. You almost avoid it because of all of the extra baggage that come along with Christmas. And even the sermon series, when I say the best Christmas ever, you might be like, what a fluff piece, right? Yeah, right. That's exactly why I wanted to use it because I want to show the paradox of the best Christmas ever but through the lens of, of Mary's humiliation and her search for, injustice, or search for justice in an unjust world. Because Christmas can be hard. I recognize that. Brings up a lot of memories and it can be painful. But Mary's voice here is important to hear. Mary's voice is important to treasure right now. One voice that we don't often get to hear at Christmas time is Mary's voice. And it's teaching us how to have hope that our God sees us and he will one day right the wrongs of our day. That one day are all the wrongs that have been done to us, all the injustices that have been done to us, all the humiliating circumstances that we have found ourselves in. Her song is prophesying that he will see us and that he will write those one day. That all of those things will come to an end and the restored creation will be done and fulfilled. That one day there will be no more injustice, no more pain, no more death. That's what makes the best Christmas ever is recognizing that one day all these things that we hide against, all these things that bring tension, all these things that are kavah in our life that bring about this hardship and tension. He says, one day these things will end. That the hope of a Christian is that in the one day that our Lord will, will come, every knee will bow, and will be an end to our waiting. Our hope will be fulfilled. The hope that shapes how we live our lives, how we prioritize our lives, and how we stay strong in our hope is by remembering the cross. Remembering the best Christmas ever is about remembering the cross. That baby who was growing in the womb of Mary would go on to be a mighty king, but not mighty in our way of worldly might. He would live a very humble life, a very humiliating life for a lot of, in a lot of ways. He would be scorned and hated for nothing more than just speaking the truth. And he would also be exalted, but not in the way of a mighty triumph through the city with an army of soldiers behind him. He would be exalted on a cross, lowly, humiliated even further, called names, and mocked. He was kinged with a crown 
but not a crown of gold, but of a crown of thorns. Yet he opened the door of hope that many prophesied about in the Old Testament to bring about the hope for eternal life, where all of creation will be reborn in the end. This is Mary's voice, is that she is singing and praising God about this king who would come and dethrone those rulers and powers, but not with power and might of physical force, but through humiliation, through humbleness, through the love that he had for his creation. The gift of hope that Jesus brings is that while our circumstances here now can be hard, I'm never discounting the circumstances you're in, but we wait in the tension of the temporary waiting for the return of our eternal king. That is the posture of those who follow Jesus. It's not trying to be overly optimistic or pessimistic, but waiting in the tension of the temporary for the promises of the hope of the eternal life for our eternal king. So I say this, stay strong followers of Jesus in the time of tension. Don't grow impatient in the time of Kava, where it's easy to want to build a, a world, a life around yourself that builds relaxation and complacency. But embrace what it means to have hope in Jesus during the times of tension. The best Christmas ever is where we get to see the gift of hope displayed. And it's not shaped by circumstances, but it's a part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I ask you, church, are we going to listen to the voice of Mary here? Are we going to listen to the voice of Mary and embrace a loving God, a God who sees us in our humiliation, in our hurt, hardships, who is going to tear down the powers and the thrones and lift up the lowly in his time? Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.